Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. seat this morning. Uh, hello again. If I didn't get to welcome you just a minute ago, my name is Ian. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at the King's Church. We're a little tight on stage today. Uh, back here are just like thousands of books on stands and things, so we're, uh, we're improvising here. Hopefully nothing will fall off. We'll be good. Um, but hey, good morning again. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning that we've been uh, walking through First Peter together, uh, and it's entitled Citizens as Strangers. Citizens as Strangers. And so as we continue to press into the idea of the tension that this creates, that we, if you are here and you've been saved by Jesus, are citizens of the kingdom of God, which therefore makes us strangers to the world around us. As we continue to press into that tension, uh, the reality of this is that there's a huge element of waiting involved. There's a huge element of waiting involved if we really embrace our identity as citizens who live as strangers. Because although when Jesus came... At his coming, he ushered in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not yet fully realized, right? It's being realized and it's being uh, spread throughout the work of the church through God's people. Uh, But ultimately, we can't see and fully realize the kingdom of God just quite yet. So until that day comes, there is some element of waiting and patience that is involved for God's people as we look forward to that day when God's kingdom will be ushered in fully. But this morning, as we get started, I want to ask the question, how do you do with waiting? How do you do with patience? Um, If I'm being honest in my own life, and if you know me well, you know this is a particular area, uh, let's call this, it's a particular area for me to continue to improve on my sanctification. Uh, It seems like God is continually putting me in circumstances where I have to wait for things. And in my uh, fleshly, earthly self, I struggle mightily with that. My wife is not in here. She'd be yelling amen if that was the case. Uh, But patience is hard for me. Uh, In my life and in my household, I have what we affectionately call a line curse. So it does not matter what sort of line you're thinking of and what kind of strategy is involved. Like I have two examples from this weekend. They'll be quick. So this weekend I'm at Publix early on Saturday with my son. There is uh, about three lanes open. And for some reason, everybody in the world is at Publix at like 8 a.m. on Saturday. Okay. And there's three lanes open. One of them has like 10 people. One of them has like eight. The other one has three. Okay. Obviously me thinking that three lines is going to be shorter, right? Getting there. Two people in front of me writing checks for groceries. That's still a thing. People still do that. They write checks for groceries. That's a thing when I get in line, for sure. Uh, driving. Driving, I always pick the wrong lane. Restrooms. It, should, it never works out properly for me. I have this line curse. God's always testing my patience. On Friday night, we went out to uh, eat dinner with some friends, and uh, my wife and I had a disagreement, of course, about which direction to go to make it to this destination. And I was driving, so I went my route. It was going so perfect. We were just flying along, hitting every light. Last corner before the restaurant, car accident. The whole thing's just shut down. I'm like, 
Not only am I waiting, but now my wife is right, and she's gently waiting for me to acknowledge that reality. But I have this line curse. It's good. Patience is hard for me. Waiting is hard for me. I don't know about you if that's the case, uh, but really the whole Christian life has this element of waiting to it, and I think these little moments give us practice for the bigger realities that are at play here. As I was thinking about this concept of waiting, I happened to be reading some C.S. Lewis this week in in preparation for a class that I teach. And I I was really struck by this quote and how C.S. Lewis talks about this tension of waiting for the kingdom of God. I want to read it. It's a little lengthy, but I think it will set us up really well for this morning. Here's what Lewis says. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts would know that what they do want and what they want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And this is the famous quote maybe you've heard before. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says here. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Well, that tension of I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same is exactly the advice that Peter gives us here in chapter two of his letter. Peter wants to remind us and keep alive our desire for our true home and our true citizenship and our true country. And then he instructs us as God's people how we are to wait. Until we make it to that day or until Christ returns, he instructs us how we wait and how we are to help others do the same. And so this morning, these four verses are not only central to the letter of 1 Peter, in my opinion, this is also the heart behind our mission statement here at the King's Church. When we were praying and crafting this mission of existing to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel, the beautiful simplicity of that is found right here in this passage. And so the main idea this morning that we're going to press into is that God redefines our story in Christ and then commissions us to declare and display the gospel. God redefines our story in Christ and then commissions us as God's people to declare and to display the gospel. And so we're going to work through each of those points. But before we jump in, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Pray with me. Uh, God, we're grateful once again to uh, come together and to sit and to hear from you. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us this book. That Holy Spirit, you have inspired the authors who compose scripture for us so that it is your words to us. Lord, I pray this morning, no matter where we are at, no matter what we're coming to the table with, no matter how we're walking into this room, may you encourage us and may you show us Jesus Christ in the scriptures this morning through what we're seeing in 1 Peter. May you encourage us and stir us up by the new identity that we've been given in Christ. And may you uh, cause us to be excited about the commissioning that you've given us to declare and to display the gospel. So Lord, as I work through this passage, move me out of the way. May you speak truth into the hearts and into the lives and into the minds of the people in this room. And may we as a church uh, come to be so in awe of you, Jesus, that we can't help but proclaim it to ourselves and to the world around us. May you stir that up within us this morning. Use this time for your good purposes. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at our story 
redefined, our story redefined. Look once again in verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, Peter's setting up a contrast here from where we left off last week. Last week, verse 8 talks about those who stumble over Jesus, those who stumble over the rock, those who disobey him. No, no, the church of God is not like that. But you, in contrast to those who disobey, no, you, you have been given a new identity. You've been given a new story. And as Peter tries to rope these churches who are scattered and persecuted, and even us today, as he ropes us into that story, he's using all of these magnificent titles that are richly rooted in the Old Testament. All of these have beautiful Old Testament implications as we're going to look at each one briefly and try to draw some application for us today. And so he begins by saying that you, Christians, are a chosen race. You are a chosen race, a race of people chosen by God himself. Now, if you were with us when we introduced this letter, we talked about this briefly, but I want to bring it up again. It's important to see he doesn't say that you are a choice race or a choice people. Right? It's not that the church is a choice people, but a chosen people. See the difference between the two? We talked about this before. God is not up in heaven just kind of building an all-star team. God's not going, all right, well, who would be the best at this and the best at this and the best at this? And then, boom, let's put them all together. There's the church. And all of a sudden, we've got this chosen race. No, no, that's not how God works. In fact, the scriptures tell us over and over again that he operates in exactly the opposite way. He operates in exactly the opposite way. You know what God, you know who God tends to use? We see it here in the pages and throughout church history. He uses the weak, he uses the helpless, and he uses the outcasts in order that he might be magnified, not us, right? In order that his glory might be seen, not our lesser glory. In order that his power might be displayed, not our own. And this has always been the pattern of God's redemptive activity. There's echoes of Deuteronomy 7 in this where the Lord is talking to Israel. I want to read that quickly, verses 6 through 8. Speaking to the people of Israel, he says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then lest we get confused, look how the Lord reminds us here. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. It is because the Lord loves you. We are a chosen people, not because there is something awesome in us. In fact, we're going to see once we get further and further into these titles, there's something really wrong with us. But we are a chosen race. We are a chosen people because God has set his love upon us, though we are undeserving and though we are weak and though we are helpless. That's the gospel. That's the good news that God would choose to do that for us. And you know what that ought to produce in us? We can pause here for a quick point of application. Uh, this ought to produce a great deal of humility in us, shouldn't it? We are not a choice people. We are a chosen people. Paul says it this way, that God loves to take the foolish to shame the wise. God uses what is weak to shame the strong. You know why he does that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so we should not be walking around with some kind of swagger in our step when we're talking about the gospel. Right? And we don't walk around with some kind of swagger, but with a beautiful limp of grace that points to him 
because of his power and his majesty and what he has done. This is why God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. One of those people is not looking at the situation properly. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. One is looking at things realistically. The other is just fooling themselves. So this morning, where are we walking in pride? Where is there a swagger in our step that ought to be a limp of grace? So Peter says we're chosen. We're not just chosen. We're a chosen race. This word here in the Greek, the genos, it describes a blood relationship, a familial relationship. Now, this made sense in the Old Testament context, right? God's chosen people was the nation of Israel. There was a a blood connection between them. But remember, Peter is writing to scattered Christians, Gentiles scattered across, predominantly Gentiles scattered across Asia Minor and the Roman Empire at this time, many different ethnicities and nations. So how can he say that we are a chosen race? Well, the good news this morning is all of us who have been saved by Jesus, we have this type of relationship with one another. We have a blood relationship. We are truly family members. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just not a phrase that the church created to describe our closeness. No, no, there's a theological backing to that. We are truly made blood relatives in the gospel. You know why? Because we are all united by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Jesus that was shed for us that unites every tribe, tongue, and language into one race, one family. You know, there's the old saying that blood is thicker than water. In the church, that's even magnified further, isn't it? When it's the blood of the Son of God that was shed for us, it certainly is thicker than water. We are made into this race of people united by the blood of Christ. So we are a chosen race. Secondly, and really these next three phrases all come from Exodus 19. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19, God gathers the people of Israel before the mountain, Mount Sinai. And he is just talking about them, giving them instructions, reminding them of his goodness. And he brought them out of Egypt. And before you have to do these things to obey me, don't forget that I've saved you out of grace. It was nothing that you did. So Exodus 19, these three phrases are found there. So secondly, he says that we are a royal priesthood, literally a kingly priesthood. You see, in Exodus 19, God was commissioning Israel, his chosen people, to display and to reflect his glory to the surrounding nations that they would rub up against, that they would come in contact with. The people of Israel were to serve as a sort of mediator, both within Israel, to to make sacrifices on behalf of the people before God, but also to the surrounding world. They were to be the mediators. They were to show forth God's glory and his goodness and his kindness to all of the other nations. But now Peter is telling us that is the church's calling. That is the church's responsibility, that we have been brought into the same identity. And don't forget, this little scattered, minority, persecuted, viewed strangely, group of Christians that are scattered around the known world at this time. You know what Peter does? He gives them a royal status. But not only a royal status, a royal responsibility. He gives these churches a royal status and a royal responsibility. Now you see the church is this kingdom of priests. You know how you get into like the royal line? Like you don't just kind of show up and be like, hey, you know, I'd love to be prince. Or hey, I'd love to be king. Right? Now you have to be born into it. Right? You got to marry into it if you're lucky. Right? If you want to get in that royalty, you've got to be born into it. You've got to marry into it. You just don't go around like making people kings and princes, not in a real sense. But don't forget what Peter's reminded us of. Right? We have been, out of God's sheer mercy and kindness, born again. And we've been born again 
to an imperishable seed. We've been born again into the royal family. All of us collectively are royal kingdom of priests. That he is taking these persecuted minority and lifting their spirits and saying, listen, you might be persecuted in this world, but don't forget, you have a kingly role. You have a kingly responsibility. You have a royal status. And so just as the nation of Israel was to mediate God's blessing to the rest of the nations, so too does the church do that today. We'll talk specifically how they do that in a moment. So that's number two, a royal priesthood. Number three, a holy nation. A holy nation. The church is to be holy. We connected this a couple weeks ago and we talked about the, the connection between hope and holiness. That as we have this living hope in the gospel, it ought to produce holy living in us because God who has called us is holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be pure, that we should stand in stark contrast to the rest of the nations around us because of our holiness in obedience to God who has made us holy. We have special access to God. God's holiness makes us holy. What was so confusing to the Roman Empire when the church was bursting onto the scenes and all of a sudden the gospel was spreading like wildfire, what was so confusing was the Christians' absolute refusal to worship the emperor as God. They refused to do that. This was part of what it meant to be a good Roman citizen after all, right? The gods need to be happy with us, otherwise things are going to go poorly. So we have these group of people who are refusing to worship the Roman gods and the emperor. There's something wrong with them. In fact, the very name for this church is inspired from this discussion. Acts 17 says this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they know what they've come there saying? That there is another king, Jesus. Right? They are a holy nation. They have been set apart by King Jesus, and their highest allegiance is to him, not to the Roman Empire. They lived under the rule and reign of King Jesus and worshipped him alone, which produced holy lives that stood in stark contrast to the world around them. That's how the gospel spread, by the way. That picked up like wildfire. Before they knew it, Christianity had impacted the entire Roman Empire. So they are a holy nation. Number four, we are a people for his own possession. This language now is rooted back in Isaiah 43, where God uses this phrase that you are a chosen people. So this morning, what, what's your favorite possession? Like when you think about possessions, what's the favorite thing that you own? Right? Maybe it's a, a photograph, maybe it's a memento of a trip or, or some great time you have with your family. Maybe it's some kind of gadget. Uh, for me, it is for sure 100% my robe. I love my robe. It's soft. It's plush. It's got a kingly aspect to it. It greets me in the morning with a nice warm hug. I love that robe, right? Like if there was a fire, I would debate, can I make it to get that robe in the bathroom? It's, it's just, it's my, it's my robe. It's my thing, right? That's my own prized possession. That robe is what I love, right? Well, whatever it is for you, God loves us infinitely more than we even love our most prized possession, right? Just infinitely more so than we love the things in our lives, which means, by the way, that God doesn't just like put up with you if you're in the church. Like, sometimes we view that. We're like, well, you know, God loves me. He saved me, but, you know, he's dealing with a lot. Like, I'm, I'm a mess. Like, God's just maybe holding me at a distance. No, no, no. That's not how God operates. God doesn't just like you like he he loves you he's your his chosen possession it's the way that we long after those things he longs after us infinitely more the picture we see in the scriptures is one of adoption right? it's one of adoption that he chose us when he didn't have to we are his prized possession we are sons and daughters of god we belong to him 
He treasures and he delights in us. So we are a people for his own possession, which means he's in charge, by the way. But he's in charge with a grace and a kindness that draws us into him, draws us into his glory. And then lastly here, number five, we are God's people who have received mercy. We're going to skip ahead to verse 10. Read that with me. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 10 really puts an exclamation point on the redemptive activity of God towards us in Christ to bring us into the church. And so Peter here is quoting from the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea. We don't have all the time to go into this, but Hosea is a crazy story. If you go back and read just the first couple chapters of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet. This is another reminder, by the way, that you did not want to be a prophet. Like God asked you to do some insane things. Like Isaiah's got to walk around naked for three years, warning about destruction. God's like, hey, look at the heavenly throne room. Then go preach to people who are never going to listen to you, right? Life of a prophet was difficult. Hosea may be the most difficult. God comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to go and marry Gomer. Now, Gomer, if I can put it lightly, was a a woman of the night. She was a bit promiscuous, okay? And God says, no, Hosea, I want you to go and marry Gomer. And they have children together, which uh, the children's names are just unfortunate for their sake, right? So we look back at Hosea 1 uh, in um, verses 8 and 9. We have the listing of this family. So they have a child, and the first child's name is, is Jezreel, which is this warning against this, this nation that's going to be destroyed. We get down to verse 8, they have a child called No Mercy. And the Lord called his name, Not My People, as a second son. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And all of this was a picture of God's relationship with Israel, that he was faithful while they were unfaithful over and over and over again. And the same metaphor now is applying to us in the church. And so the story continues, Uh, Gomer leaves Hosea, she goes back to her life uh, of what she lived before, and in chapter 3, God goes to Hosea and he says, go again to your adulterous wife and redeem her. Literally, that means buy her back. So imagine the shame for Hosea for a minute. Hosea, who is married to this woman, who is promiscuous, who is out and about, he has to go and buy her back with silver. He goes and buys her back. Well, in the greatest sense The picture of the gospel is seen so clearly there. I love what what Tim Keller says. He says, in Jesus Christ, the true bridegroom, our true husband, God came into this world and entered the marketplace of the world and bought us back, not with money, but with his own blood. Not at the cost of emotional pain, which is what Hosea did, but at the cost of infinite suffering on the cross. I love how he closes. He says, that's your wonder and there's your identity. We, though we have been faithless, though in the picture of God's love for the church that is seen so mysteriously but gloriously in the context of marriage, that we have been the unfaithful one, that we have over and over again forsaken our covenant vows with the Lord. But you know what the Lord does? He buys us back. He goes again. Jesus comes and he sheds his blood that we might be brought into God's story and God's family. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're in Christ this morning, that's your story. That is God's posture towards us. Now, let's take a step back for a minute. Why is Peter doing this? Right? Why is he running through all of these Old Testament uh, attributes of the people of Israel, now applying them to the church? Well, I think it's clear that, that Peter wants to connect their story into God's story. 
He wants to remind them that God has always been at work. He wants to graft these scattered, persecuted nobodies in this context into his glorious and eternal and majestic plans and purposes. You see, if the church walked around in the Roman Empire and claimed these titles outright, people would have looked at them and laughed. They said, that's not you. You guys are nobodies. You don't even worship the Roman Empire. You're weird here anyways. We don't treat you right. How could you possibly be a royal priesthood, a holy nation? You know, but God is in the business of taking our stories and redefining them, bringing us into the story that is above all other stories. He's inviting us into something far bigger than ourselves. He is inviting us into what he has been doing for all of eternity. And those things are accomplished through God's people, through the church. This is not talking about individuals. This is collectively the body of Christ, the church, God's people. Together, we bear this identity. Though we are undeserving, God has poured out his mercy and his grace and his kindness through Jesus Christ. So this morning, maybe we have to ask the question, like, what if this doesn't feel like it's true? Because right? if you're anything like me, I'm not exactly living up to these identities on a daily basis. Right? And maybe you're in here and you're, you just are not sure about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe you're like, I'm here checking this out. I'm interested in Jesus. Let me, let me start with you for a moment. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, like anybody can get in on this. Anybody can get in on this. You're not too far gone. God came and sent his son to die for us that we might be brought back into the family of God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the call to the grace and the kindness of God towards us in Christ is to believe, to repent and to believe. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Jesus has accomplished it all on the cross, and he's inviting us into the story by just simply accepting the gift, by believing. And so this morning, we, there's, there's nothing more that we would love for someone to put their faith in Jesus, for God to save them, for you to see the beauty of the gospel, to get wrapped up in that story and to say, I want in on that. That's my life. That's my story. So if you're here, wrestle with that this morning. If you're here and you are a Christian, I want you to take heart that all of us are works in progress in some way, shape, or form. God doesn't save us and then instantly give us like perfection in these areas, right? We're all works in progress in some way, shape, or form. But this truly is our identity. This is how God looks at us. He doesn't look at us and kind of keeps us at a distance. No, he loves us and he values us in the ways that are described right here. And God is at work to conform us to these names and to these identities. I love what Russell Moore says. He said, God names people and then conforms them to this new name. We are being shaped to our new name in Christ. That is what God is doing in our lives. He is shaping us. He is molding us. He is forming us. He is using people. He is using circumstances. He is using just time to mold us and to form us more and more into a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. You know who knows that more than anybody else, by the way? The author of this book, Peter. Right? Jesus shows up, and, and he renames Simon to Cephas, to Peter. You know what that means? Rock. Now, we know Peter's life. Was Peter's faith just rock solid at all times? No, right? Peter's a mess, right? It, it culminates with him denying Jesus three times as Jesus predicted. And Peter's like, no way, I'm always with you. But Peter knows this keenly, that we have been given a name that we might not yet experientially and functionally live up to, but God's at work. Just like he was at work in Peter's life, 
to continue to form and to mold him into who he has identified him as and who he's called him to be, so too is he at work with us. And so this morning, if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're discouraged, take heart. God's at work. He's the one who is molding us. He is conforming us. We just simply get wrapped up in it. Let's sit and let's be in awe and let's be in wonder of how he has saved us, how he has given us these new identities. So God redefines our story in Christ. But God has not saved us and redefined our story merely for our own enjoyment or for our own eternal well-being. Now, there's a purpose to this. In fact, there's a glorious purpose to this that Peter hits on right here in point two, declaring the gospel. Look at the second half of verse nine. I cheated. We sandwiched a little bit. We're going back up. Verse nine, second half. He lists all those names, and then he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the glorious existence of the church. This is our purpose, that we might proclaim the excellencies of God. This word for proclaim, it's the only time this shows up in the New Testament. It's a combination of, of telling and going and declaring news. It's, it means to tell out, to proclaim throughout. In a literature that used Greek outside of the Bible, it meant imparting something unknown or declaring something that has been concealed. So what is this thing that we make known? What is this thing that has been concealed but now is to be revealed through the church? Well, Peter says it's the excellencies of God. It's the excellencies of the one who has saved us. That word excellencies, it means praises. It's similar to what we see throughout the whole book of Psalms. Right? So Psalms over and over again speaks, number one, of who God is, and then secondly, what God has done. When we talk about proclaiming the excellencies of God, we're proclaiming who he is and what he has done, and specifically what he has done in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to proclaim the excellencies of God. I love uh, when Pastor Pat and I have been working through this book together. By the way, Pat's preaching next week, so come on back for that. I'm tired of hearing myself, so I know you guys are ready for that. Uh, as Pastor Pat and I have been working through this book, I, he reminds me of this over and over again. He said, the things that Peter is telling us to do are what we're going to be doing for eternity. You know what we're going to be doing for eternity? We're going to be sitting around the throne of God before us. Jesus is there. We're with him as his people, and we're going to be proclaiming his excellencies. We're going to be proclaiming who he is and what he has done. We're going to be doing that for eternity. As we do that now, you know what we're doing? We're following what C.S. Lewis says. We're longing for our true home, and we're helping other people get there. We proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, practically, how do we do this? Because in one sense, like, proclaiming is second nature to us. Like, we are a people created in the image of God. God's a proclaimer, right? That's how he creates things. He spoke all things into existence. We, as image bearers of God, have the ability to speak, the ability to proclaim, like the animals proclaim, but not like we do, right? We can understand what we're saying. We can declare the excellencies of God. And so we are a people who just proclaim all the time. I think the question we ought to ask is not how do we proclaim, but what are we proclaiming, right? We're always doing this all of the time. So what is quick to come off your tongue? What are you constantly discussing? What are you celebrating? What are you excited about? What are you proclaiming? Uh, this summer, I was struck by an article I was reading in Christianity Today. Uh, they were reporting statistics on how Christians in the United States view this idea of evangelism, of sharing your faith. So 64% of Christians agreed with this statement. 
I believe that every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. But then 19% agreed with this statement. I actively seek or create opportunities to share my faith. That's a massive gap from 64% saying, yeah, we should be doing this, to 19% saying, yeah, I'm trying, I'm thinking about it. So practically, I get this. There's a rub here. Like, this is hard for us for some reason. There's a stumbling block that tends to get in our way. And so where do we begin? Where do we begin if we're not actively proclaiming the excellencies of God? Well, I think Peter tells us one way immediately. Right? He adds a phrase onto the end of that. He says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If that's your story, if Jesus has saved you, you have that to proclaim. We start right there. We can simply begin by telling how God brought us into his story, how he has brought us out of darkness, that once we were spiritually dead, once we were in rebellion, but now God, through the light of Jesus Christ, has called us to himself. We start there. We start by saying, look at what God has done, and this is who he is. We're holding those two things up. This is who God is. This is what he has done. And as we do this, by the way, Peter's reminding us that he's the one who does the work. We're not the ones who call people out of darkness into light. No, that's God's work. We simply and gloriously get to participate in that. We, we simply are the heralds, the messengers. We point to him. We got no power in and of ourselves. God is the one who saves. But you know how he does it? He uses us. We are the means to that salvation by proclaiming, by making known Jesus. Which, by the way, means there's no pressure on us. Right? There might be some cultural costs, there might be some social uh, kind of holding at a distance that happens to you, but don't forget, we're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. We don't worry ourselves about that, we worry ourselves about our true king and our true country. So though it might cost us something socially, there's no pressure on us. Yes, we should figure out how to be as effective as we can be, but God's the one who saves. And God uses weak and frail people to accomplish his good purposes. And so this morning, how are we doing this? Are we a proclaiming people? Are we a proclaiming the excellencies of God? The last thing I want to call us to here is notice that this is a collective calling. Like, yes, I have a unique opportunity to stand up here and proclaim the excellencies of God. Your pastors have that. But Peter's not saying this is for the pastors. Right? This is for all of us. This is a collective calling. This is not just our job. Right? We're to be a prophetic people who points to the excellencies of Christ in the everyday stuff of life. It doesn't have to be an event. It doesn't have to be a church on Sunday. Man, we just bring the goodness and the glory and the excellency of Jesus into our workplace, into our homes, into the place we work out. Right? Wherever God might have you, there's an opportunity just to point to him, to proclaim to him. So what are you declaring? It's our glorious commissioning that we get to declare the excellencies of Christ. And God uses us weak and frail people to bring people to himself. By the way, the reason that we're here today, 2,000 years removed from Jesus, whole nother part of the world, is because the church has been faithful to do this. The church has been faithful to do this throughout the generations over and over again. May that 19% not be so of us. May that 19% not be us. We have a commissioning. It's a royal commissioning of the king to declare to make much of him, to open our mouths and to speak and to speak. But that's not all that we do. We don't simply declare, but we also are to display. 
look at these last few verses once again. He says, beloved, reminding them again that you are loved by God. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Another reminder of our series title here. He says, beloved as sojourners and exiles, citizens who have been loved by God as strangers who live as sojourners and exiles. He urges us to do two things. First thing he says is that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Passions literally means over desires. See, Peter's going to talk about our conduct in a minute, but right here he's getting underneath our conduct. He's getting underneath our behavior, and he's warning us to check our passions. He's telling you to check your heart. He's getting down to the level of worship, because whatever we are worshiping, our behavior will follow. That's why we exist here, to see a greater worship of Jesus, because we think as we rightly worship him, the behavior will follow. But the passions of the flesh here are wrongly directed worship. What has captured our hearts that is orienting us away from worship of God to worship of something else, whether it's ourselves, something around us. Flesh here be the lifestyle of this world, not the kingdom of God. The flesh is set against the spirit and unchecked. These passions, they strip us of the capacity to declare and display the gospel. These passions that wage war against our souls, we'll talk about that in a moment. They strip us of the capacity to fulfill our commission. And so we all have to pause and ask ourselves, if we are not proclaiming the excellencies of God, maybe there's a, a passion that has gotten into our worship that's directing us elsewhere. So what's going on in your heart? What's captured your heart? What are you quick to talk about? And what does that reveal about your passions? Right? What's going on under the hood, so to speak? What's grabbed your heart? And don't miss the intensity of the language. Peter says that these passions are waging war against our souls. It literally means soldiers who are marching forward to battle. That's what those passions are doing against us. So if there's really a war going on here, we don't just like coast through life, right? No, we have a wartime mentality. Our senses are awakened. We're paying attention to every little thing. We're, we're awake to the realities that are happening within us. Now, we have to be careful here because I think too often we think the war is out there, don't we? We think the war is out there. Like, man, Christians sometimes use this phrase, we're just losing the culture war. I don't see any culture war going on here. You know where I see the war? The internal desires of my flesh. And so if Christians are to be known for making war in this way, it shouldn't be out there. It ought to be inside. It ought to be trying to make war against every sinful desire within us that draws us away from the beauty of the gospel, that draws us in to declare and to display. And so let's be careful where we're aiming this mentality. Oftentimes, sin can look so attractive to us in a moment. We can convince ourselves it is completely harmless in this instance. So this means we've lost sight of the war, right? War is won by little victories. And so where are we at on this? We've been given the tools to fight this war. We've been giving the indwelling Holy Spirit. We've been giving God's people. We have to use the army that we've been given to fight this war. But secondly, Peter says, as we do that, on the positive end, we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This word for honorable means beautiful or attractive. 
So if I could state this differently, the church is called to live beautiful and attractive lives among the Gentiles. Now remember, he's speaking to Gentile Christians, but they've now become the true Israel. They've now become God's chosen people. They've been grafted into those. So the world around is theologically Gentiles to them. And as we do this, Peter says that we will be accused of being evildoers. That when they speak against you as evildoers. Listen, there are beliefs that this book holds, that Christians hold, that will increasingly be viewed as hateful and evil by the world around us. We should not be shocked. Can we commit together to not be shocked when the world around us says, hey, that doesn't make any sense. That's hateful. The scriptures expect that to happen. Don't forget, we are living stones being built on the cornerstone of Jesus who was rejected by men and crucified. Our beliefs are going to be viewed as strange. They might even be viewed with hostility in the world around us. But you know how Peter says we respond to that? He doesn't say, well, make sure you defend yourself. Make sure they don't misunderstand where you're coming from. No, no, he says, don't worry about that right now. We should, we should view our conduct, our way of life, will put them to shame. What if we spent our time, instead of trying to defend ourselves to the world around us, were drawn into God's story and lived holy and beautiful lives? Because you know what Peter says that does? It provokes them. It provokes them to believe. So we will be mistreated, we will be misrepresented, we will be misaligned. Instead of standing up defending yourself, he says that our displaying of the gospel is a powerful witness for Jesus, who, by the way, lived that perfectly for us. Though he was reviled, he did not repent. Right? He just lived an honorable, beautiful, and glorious life that provoked people to believe. And Peter has this incredibly hopeful and wonderful assumption here that I pray that I have and I pray that this church has. He says, as you fight to do this, when those people speak against you as evildoers, instead they will see your honorable conduct. They will see your good deeds. You know what they're going to do? They're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. That day of visitation is hinting to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament when Jesus is coming back. And you know what those people are going to do on the day that Jesus comes back? According to Peter, his assumption is that they're going to see your good deeds and they're going to be provoked to believe the good news of the gospel. So that though they, though they malign you right now, on the day Jesus comes back, you're going to be side by side praising King Jesus together. That's a hopeful assumption, isn't it? There's a hopeful expectation that comes here from Peter. What if we adopted this expectation? What if instead of being so doom and gloom, we said, you know what? People are getting saved. God's on the move. He's using us broken people, but as we declare and as we display the gospel, he's going to continue to save people. He's going to continue to draw them to repentance by his kindness. He's going to continue to build his kingdom. We're not building the kingdom. God is building it. He has done that for the whole history of the church. He will continue to do that in the future. The question is, are we participating? Are we participating? It's not up to us. But man, we get such a beautiful and exciting role to play. He commissions us to declare and to display that gospel. We don't disengage as strangers. We don't draw back into our silos. No, no, Peter says we rub shoulders with our neighbors. We get around people who don't know Jesus. And as we declare and as we display the excellencies of Christ, Peter says people's lives are going to get changed. And so my last question as we close this morning is, do you have a life 
that allows unbelievers to have access to God? Are you rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Jesus? Like, do you know your neighbors? Do you know your coworkers? Are you inviting them into your home? Are they observing how you live? Peter says there's something about how you live that will draw people to believe the gospel. Do people see how you live? Right? Citizens as strangers doesn't mean we just draw back. No, it means that we press in and the tension of that and engage with the confidence of the gospel. And so are we around and are we rubbing shoulders in a way that people can see how we are faithful to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life? This is the church. Our story has been redefined by God's grace, mercy, and kindness. We've been given a new identity in him. We've been commissioned to declare and to display the excellencies of Christ. This is how the gospel advances. God is on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost. He does this through using broken, ordinary people bearing witness to him. That is why we planted this church. And so if you're here this morning, let's repent of the ways that we've been running from this. And let's turn back because God is kind and he is good and he continually is at work within us and to sit before him and believe again with faith. To believe that God is on the move and to ask him and to beg him to move in and through us to see this accomplished. Let's pray.